Good morning. In 1980, James Dobson made a statement that I found very provocative. He said, I am convinced that the preservation of the family is going to depend on the absence or the presence of male leadership in millions of homes. I believe that without the husband in the home, it is doubtful that we will have the preservation of the family. Some 40 plus years later, the U.S. Census Bureau, a secular institution, brought out its statistics to say that 18.4 million children last year were living in homes without a father, either their biological father or an adopted father or a stepfather. And in their data compilation, they also said that you can feel the negative effects in various ways in homes where there is no father. And there's a positive difference that is made, not only on the children, but on the mothers in homes where fathers exist. You know, it seems that if only society had had the opportunity to have Dobson's message broadcasted, not just broadcasted, but believed and embraced... But I think you would agree with me that just the mere presence of a father in the home is not enough. There has got to be an investment that is made. There has to be an impact that is made by the fathers who are in those homes. When we consider that, it's a truth that I believe that Steve Farrer makes very well in a book called Anchorman, talking about what has happened to the role of father in the last 200 years. He says, we have gone from one disconnection to another. He says we disconnected physically when we left the farm for the factory during the Industrial Revolution. We disconnected spiritually when we fell for the lie that mothers should be responsible for the moral and the spiritual training in the home. And he said that we disconnected emotionally when for our children we did not fill the spiritual tanks of our sons and our daughters. The challenge that we face, fathers, as we think about our role today, is how is it that we can live our lives without regret? It would be nice for us to live with as few regrets as possible, but I want to tell you that it's impossible to live totally without regret. It was a humbling exercise in writing this sermon to think about the days in which my boys were at home. And as I thought about that, the way that my mind went, at least at first, was there are some things I regret. There are some things that I wish that I had done differently. I wish that I had been more patient. And I wish that I had not lost my temper as often as I did when our boys were at home. I wish that I had more properly... Uh, invested myself so that I was mentally present more often than I believe that I was. I wish that I had exemplified the principles that I tried to instill in them more consistently. Now, I do believe that there is a difference between moments of regret and a lifetime of regret. It will be helpful for us this morning, I believe, always, if we can find either a principle or a passage or maybe an example of someone in Scripture who can help us with what it is we seek. And I think that everyone who either is a father or is going to be a father would love to live with as few regrets as possible. How do we do that? Where can we look? And I want to look at an individual, a man who was a great father. I suppose that if he were to be honest 
he could really look at his life and say that there were few things that he had to be regretful about. This man who was a great father, we don't know anything about any biological children that he had. But we read about his fathering in the book of Esther. The man I'm talking about is the one that Caden read so well about a moment ago. In Esther chapter 2, verse 5 through verse 7, as the inspired writer is laying down for us the circumstance that's the background for the book of Esther. That uh, here you have Mordecai, a man of Benjamite, who had come with the captives that were taken with Jeconiah, the king of Judah, whom King Nebuchadnezzar had carried away. And there was Hadassah, that is Esther, the one who was his uncle's daughter, who had neither father nor mother. And when they both died, he took her and he raised her as his own daughter. Apparently, she was a younger cousin. And yet, she became his daughter. And it seems that there are some principles that we find in the book of Esther as Mordecai takes her as his own daughter that can help us as fathers to live with as few regrets as possible. Do you want to live life without regret? What are some things that Mordecai teaches us? For the sake of time, I want to look at just four. First of all, to live without regret. We will see four things. First of all, to live without regret... We must invest time in our children. You will not regret investing time in your children. You know, Alcatraz was one of the most notorious federal prisons to have ever existed. And when someone was placed there between 1934 and 1965, they were given a list of the rules of Alcatraz. And rule number five had to do with the rights. You can expect food, clothing, shelter, and medical assistance... And anything else is a privilege. You know, we never want to say that in our homes, at least by action, that you have the right to food and clothing and shelter and medical assistance, but you can't have my time. You see, time is a need, and our children need as much of our time as we can give them. When we look at Mordecai, we see the expenditure of his time. He seems to have been a very important man. We kind of can surmise some of what his job was as we read through the book of Esther in Esther chapter 3. But he was a man who was in a place of importance in the kingdom. When we read about him, he is so important that he thwarts an assassination plot against King Ahasuerus or King Xerxes in Esther chapter 2, verse 21 through 23. And by the time we get to the end of the book, he is a man who is the second most powerful man in the most powerful nation on earth, Esther chapter 10 and verse 3. But what impresses me that despite his prominence and his importance was that he was invested time-wise in Esther physically and emotionally. Esther 2.11 says that each and every day that he was outside of the harem of the courts and he wanted to know how Esther was and what was happening with her. He cared about how she was doing and so he consistently gave her time. You know, when we think about what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 5, there's a responsibility that God gives the man to take care of his family physically. And so in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 8, the Apostle Paul says, If anyone does not provide for his own, especially those of his household, this one has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. He's talking about not uh, children there, but widows. But it's a reminder for us that takes us back to the Garden of Eden that starting in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 19, God made the man responsible for the toil and care of the physical needs of the family. And so food and clothing and shelter 
And medical assistance is honorable and admirable. But we cannot stop there. Dads, we have got to invest time-wise in our children. One of the passages that tell us about this indicate to us that it's going to take some time for us to be a father. In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4, the Apostle Paul says that fathers do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And for the sake of time, I want to just look at the stuff on the right side of that comma. The first thing he says is, fathers, bring them up. Now this idea is to feed or to nourish, to provide food for. And the Apostle Paul's not talking about meat and potatoes. He is talking about some specific food that he's going to outline for us in the rest of the passage. And so as we look at our time responsibility, we are in charge of the food. No, not the meals that are cooked in the kitchen, though some fathers do a good job of that. But what's specified by Paul in this verse. First part of that meal is that we are to bring them up in the discipline. We are to feed them, nourishing them with practical information that leads to responsible living. Doing that, nourishing them in this discipleship is going to take time. Dads, we've got to teach our sons to respect women, to, re- to be their protectors, to be gentlemen, to show them that it's great to kiss your wife. We have got to teach daughters that there are two kinds of beauty, inside beauty and outside beauty, and that inside beauty is what matters more to you and to God. You've got to teach them to be kind to others, to teach them to do the job right the first time. Teach them not to cheat on their homework and on their tests. Teach them to stand alone because sometimes you have to. To teach them in the process of discipline that they are to do what's right even when nobody is looking because Jesus is always looking and He rewards good character. To teach them that men take the lead in the home and in the church. To teach them to know what to look for in a husband and a wife. And so as we look at that training ground, it's something that takes time. We will not regret investing time in our children. And the first part of that spiritual meal that we give them is discipline. That is this information that leads to right and responsible living. But we're also to bring them up, to feed them in the instruction of the Lord. And this is interesting that it's not just talking about information. It's talking about laying it on their heart. And dads, what a great and daily challenge that is to us. That means that we're going to have to be in God's Word every day and filling our heart with that so that as we fill it more and more inside of ourselves, that it's going to come out in all the interactions that we have with our children as we're speaking to them about the broad spectrum of issues in life, that because we've been in the Word, that's what's going to be shared with them. That instruction that leads them to understand what the uh, writer Moses is saying in the second giving of the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 18 through 21, as he says that these words of mine, you're to lay on your heart and on your soul and you're to teach them to your sons everywhere as you're in the house and when you go out and when you lie down and you rise up, you're to put them in front of you at all times and put them, even write them on the door of your house so that your days may be multiplied on the earth. I don't know how many of you are NASCAR fans. I imagine several of us are. It's fascinating to me. Besides the crashes, one of the most interesting things to watch is when somebody pulls in for a pit stop 
And it's incredible. It's almost like an orchestra, a symphony. You have all these moving parts, but everyone plays an important role. I don't even know the names of all of them, but I know that there are jack men and gas men and catch can men and carriers. And, of course, the pit crew chief. And there's various observers all over the place. And you may know this if you're a real fan, but an average pit stop in a NASCAR race lasts between 13 and 15 seconds. And in that period of time, they completely fill the tank of the driver and change all four tires. And this is so impressive that the average person on a pit crew in a NASCAR race is going to easily make a six-figure salary, but sometimes the pit crew chiefs can make over a million dollars. They're using these skills to be able to do this job so quickly. But that's not the job of fatherhood. We're not commissioned to be NASCAR dads who are rushing out of the home day after day as quickly as we can to our job and our other responsibilities. As we look at Esther's role model, his influence in the home, we see a man who took the time day after day to find out how she was. And, you know, it was challenging for him because there was an intermediary. He couldn't speak directly to her once that she went into the entourage of uh, King Ahasuerus and when she became the queen. And yet he still was there invested in his time day after day. There may be the occasional man who neglects his responsibility at work to, to spend all his time nurturing his family at home, but that would be the exception. You will not regret investing time in your children But then number two, I would suggest to you that you will not regret modeling faithfulness to your children. It's fair. You you can admit this to yourself as I say this, but a lot of us don't know a lot about the book of Esther. But if we know a little bit about the book of Esther, then we're likely to know that the name of God does not appear in the book of Esther. I mean, you don't have a better example of providence in the entire Bible than in the example of Esther. But his name is never explicitly mentioned. And the same is true with regard to Mordecai's faith. We can see that he's faithful and and yet it's not explicitly said to us. Here's what we know in Esther chapter 3 and verse 2 is that King Xerxes or King Ahasuerus, he uh, uh, causes Haman to be promoted above all the others of his servants. And as the result of this, he also wrote a law. And in that law, every one of the servants had to bow down and pay homage to uh, Haman, according to Esther chapter 3 and verse 2. And from this, we can conclude that Mordecai must have been one of the king's servants because it was expected of him, Esther chapter 3 and verse 3. And yet, it says that he would not do this because he was a Jew. Now, there's where an implication is found. Why the fact that he was a Jew? Well, what helps us in understanding what's going on here and the connection that this has to faith is an event extremely similar to this that happened just a few years before. If we go back to the reign of uh, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, we see an incident very similar where uh, King Nebuchadnezzar had made this golden image and he required all in the kingdom to bow down to his gods and to bow down before that golden image. And as a result of this, it is noted that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego don't bow. And so Nebuchadnezzar goes and gives them special treatment. He says, look, you may not know this, but there's the sounding of this bell, and I need you to bow down. And they say, we don't have need to answer you with regard to this, O king. We believe that our God will deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. 
But even if he doesn't, be it known unto you, O king, that we will not bow to this golden image which you have set up. Daniel chapter 3, verse 17 through 19. And so here is exactly where Mordecai is. Now, there may have been some other Jews who might have bowed, but Mordecai would not. And as the result of this, it makes Haman enraged, just like uh, King Nebuchadnezzar was. Very similar reaction in Esther chapter 3 and verse 5. And by the time we get to Esther chapter 4, Esther knows what's going on. She knows that because Mordecai would not compromise on right and wrong... That the entire people, all the Jews, faced extermination. But it was more than that. Mordecai was not just standing on the principle of faithfulness, but he expected her to stand right along with him. And we get to that part of Esther chapter 4 that we're familiar with, where he is urging her to stand up and to do what's right, and she's afraid to do it. And yet she has his example and his exhortation. And he says to her, if you keep silent, salvation for the Jews will arise from another place and you and your father's household will perish. But who knows whether or not you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this, Esther chapter 4 and verse 14. And it impacted her so much that she said, I'm willing to go into the presence of the king unannounced. And if I perish, I perish, Esther chapter 4 and verse 16. Fathers, you will not regret letting Jesus Christ be front and center in your daily life. Whenever you are struggling with a problem or with a pressure or a trial, they need to see you. Get down on your knees in prayer. When you are pushed to compromise on what's not right or to bend your faith in order to accommodate something, They need to see you showing that you're not going to compromise what's right and do what's wrong. And when, as much as they see you checking your phone and your television, they need to see you engaged in the study of of God's Word and in prayer. We need to spend time with our families, having family devotions with them, worshiping together as a family. And dads, what about going to their bedside at night and praying with them right before they go to sleep? And if that sounds weird to your family, maybe that's a practice that should have started before now. With Mordecai, we have an individual whose faith and faithfulness made such an impression that it lived on in Esther. My grandfather was a cotton farmer in the Delta of Mississippi, and he served as an elder for several generations. At least a dozen preachers and a couple of elders have descended from him. And as I think about my grandfather, not only do I think about the value of hard work and a man who lived simply and lived well, but I think about a man who was a Bible student. Almost all of us grandchildren have had conversations with one another when we talked about how we all used to catch Grandpa. He went out to to get on the tractor really, really early. But if you got up early enough, you could go in there and you could see him sitting in his chair with his lamp on. And he was studying his Bible. You may notice it's a little hard for me to preach with this bigger Bible today. I'm preaching with my Grandpa's Bible today. I don't have his main study Bible because it literally disintegrated. And I don't know where the notes are that he took, but this is the last Bible that he had. This is the Bible he had for the last four years of his life. And what Grandpa would do, he had this little system in which he would mark in that Bible every time he, he, he read. And, and those marks eventually made numbers. And he read his Bible six times in the last four years of his life, some of which were filled with some illness. 
I don't think that he was doing that for show because he got up so early. It was just a thing that we knew. How wonderful it was to catch my grandfather studying his Bible. Dads, wouldn't it be wonderful for your children to have that memory of you? That they stumbled on you, that they came into your presence and you didn't even know it and they found you studying your Bible or praying to God? What a difference that's going to make. You will not regret living out your faith publicly and privately. It's like Paul said with regard to Timothy. He says, I see this faith and I know I can trace it back to your home. 2 Timothy 1 and verse 5. As we think about the legacy that we're leaving in our homes, we will not regret modeling faithfulness for them. But then third, I would suggest that we will not regret modeling humility before them. One of the remarkable studies of the book of Esther is the contrast in leadership. The two main leaders that are under focus, by the way, it's not King Xerxes, it's Mordecai and Haman. And if you'll contrast the two of them, look at Haman. Haman was a man who was full of arrogance and sinful pride. And it made him a terrible leader. And what we see in Mordecai was the exact opposite of this. And we'll see more about that in a moment, but... Haman was also leaving a legacy. As a result of his arrogance and his pride, it cost him dearly. Esther chapter 7 and verse 10, he lost his life because of his pride. And it also cost 10 of his sons. Esther chapter 9 verse 7 through 10, it lists, and that's remarkable to me, that if your name gets in the Bible, that says something. But all 10 of Haman's sons are listed in Scripture as among those that by the king's commission Mordecai put to death for their wickedness. Those 10 boys had that legacy left for them because of the pride of their father. But when I look at Mordecai, I see a man who was humble. Even though he was of such importance and such prominence, he demonstrated that humility. You may recall that he didn't choose to accept uh, or pursue honor. In Esther 2, we talked earlier about the fact that he thwarted the the eunuch's plot to try to take uh, King Xerxes' life. And he just did that in the course of his duty. And nothing was done to honor him at that time because it allowed, uh, in the providence of God, for Ahasuerus not being able to sleep to hear about this at just the time that Haman was trying to destroy all the Jews. And he said, what's been done to honor him? Nothing, so let's honor him. The king gave him honor. He didn't seek it for himself. And what an impression that must have made. He was not an ambitious man. He accepted the honor when it came, but he did not pursue glory and fame and honor for himself. He didn't didn't chase honor. But we also find at the very end of the book that he showed kindness and compassion to everyone. In Esther 10 and verse 3, the very last verse of the book, it says that he became the second, second only to King Ahasuerus in all of the Persian Empire. But he had compassion for his people and he cared about them. Don't you know that that made an impression on Esther? As you see his power and position... He reflects to her a principle that she lived out. You see humility in Esther and her comportment of herself. And how God worked through that to save an entire nation. Humility is difficult. Especially sometimes if we've been trained in our background that you never show weakness. Dads, let me suggest to you that it's powerful when you show humility to your children. And one of the best ways that you can do that is when you apologize. 
You know, you may think that it's going to hurt your leadership if you say, I'm sorry. If they see you do something wrong, the very best thing that you can do for them is to humble yourself and to say, I shouldn't have done that. Or if they see that you do something that's not right with regard to something outside of the family context and they call you on that, don't excuse it or rationalize it. We don't ever want to model hypocrisy in front of them. We don't want to be, as Jesus says, like those Pharisees who they, they tell others to do things, but they don't do them. They say and do not do. They lay these heavy burdens on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not lift so much as a finger with them. And you can also demonstrate humility when those who society say are beneath you are those who you acknowledge and you help and you serve. You won't regret instilling that principle in your children that you do for others and you go out of your way to show kindness to them. Everything about what we see in Mordecai was that he was thoughtful, compassionate, and caring about even the lowliest of the people. But then finally, I suggest to you that you will not regret being approachable with your children. Be approachable with them. There was a study that was recently conducted, 2018, 36,000 teenagers. And as they uh, studied those teenagers, they asked them this simple question, where do you turn in times of stress and crisis? And here are the numbers as they laid out. 44% of teenagers in a time of stress and crisis turn online. Remarkably, 34% say they do nothing. 22% say they turn to their friends. 20% say they turn to food. 15% say they turn to exercise. 10% say they turn to to drugs and alcohol. 13% of children say that their parents are the cause of their stress and their crisis. But there was no immeasurable statistic in which it was found that those children turned to their parents in their time of trouble. But if I were to ask every single dad present here today, if you knew that your children were in trouble, would you want them to turn to you? I know you would say yes, every one of you. You know, there were times when our boys got so deep in trouble, they got to the point to where they couldn't get themselves out without asking for my help. You know, I thought, I guess somewhat self-righteously, if only they had turned to me earlier, I could have helped them. But I live with the reality that there were times... When I wasn't very approachable, must have made it hard for them. You will not regret being approachable with your children. And don't you see that in the case of Mordecai and Esther? It had to have been tough. But you have um, Mordecai reaching out to Esther and warning them about this plot that was going to take place. And the coming uh, demise and extermination of their people was going to happen if she didn't step in. And then she replies, and he listens to her reply. Esther chapter 4 and verse 17 even does what it is that she asks. She respects him. She continues to honor him. Esther 2 and verse 20, even after she's grown, and he continues to show a door's always open. She can always come to him. May I suggest that we need to be approachable with our children, and we will not regret it. But what does that mean? That means that we need to take the time to listen. Not just to their words. Listen to their heart. 
Esther's stressed about the situation regarding Haman, and she expresses that. And Mordecai listens to that. Dads, we have a perfect father who lays out before us an example that we aspire to, that we strive toward. Like the psalmist said in Psalm 116, I love the Lord because He heard my voice and He heard my supplications. Therefore I will call on Him because He heard me when I called for as long as I live. Dads, if we will take the time to listen and to hear what they're having to say, they will turn to us as long as we live. And isn't that what we want? We must take the time to listen. But may I also suggest that we look them squarely in the eye. That when they're talking to us, that we again imitate the Father in Psalm 38 and verse 18, when they're brokenhearted, when they're crushed in spirit, and they come to us, that we're focused on what it is that's the problem. And you know, here's the thing. It's not going to always be convenient. It's uncanny, it seems like, that when our children need to talk to us, need to approach us, it's at just that moment that we really don't have the time. And occasionally we have to tell them, look, we've got to put this off for just a little while. But we will not regret putting off work and other responsibilities not to miss the moment. To look into their hearts, look into their lives, and to listen to what it is that's going on with them. Mordecai is a, a sinner. Romans 3 and verse 23. So I guess if we had the ability to interview him and to ask him, hey, did you have any regrets as an adopted dad of Esther? He would say, yeah, I'm sure. And maybe he could list them for you specifically. But when you look at Mordecai's example, he shows, he challenges me. And here's the thing I didn't know four years ago. When we had that empty nest stage and, and they were gone, the relationship changes but the very things I'm talking about, you dads who are, are still have your kids at home or are about to have kids or want to have kids, it continues. These same principles. You can live without regret. But to live without regret, there are some things that you've got to, to take to heart. You've got to impress upon yourself. You have got to invest your time in your kids you need to model for them faithfulness, no matter what faithfulness. And a humility that swallows your pride and thinks of others above yourself. And you've got to be approachable to them and so that they know no matter what crisis comes along, because wherever you are and wherever they are, you've already gone through the stage that they're going through, and you can be a source of help for them. You will not regret being a spiritual leader to your children. And it's never too late to assume that role. But the longer you wait, the more there is to regret. Louis Pasteur is probably known to you when you pour yourself a glass of milk every day. It makes it safe for us to drink without getting sick. But he was also an immunologist. And as a young scientist, there were tens of thousands of children who died, or people who died of rabies, and he continued to do his work to try to find a, a vaccine for that. And in the process of doing that, he came to the point where he was going to use that vaccine on himself. But about that time, there was a young boy, nine years old, Joseph Meisner, who was bitten by a rabid dog. And his hysterical mother pleaded with Pasteur to use the vaccinations on the boy. And so he did. He gave him those shots for ten days and the boy lived. Now, Pasteur went on to be a great scientist and to achieve all kind of different things. Ultimately, toward the end of his life, 
as he was preparing for his own death, he consulted with those in charge of that and they asked him what he would like put on his headstone. He wanted his epitaph to say only three words. Joseph Meisner lived. Dad, you may achieve some great and important things in your life. But the legacy that you want to have when this life is over, as you stand before the King of kings and the Lord of lords, is to be able to hear Him say that your children will live with Him eternally. You will not regret being a faithful Christian father. Maybe there's someone here this morning who's not yet entered into that relationship with Christ. Brother Eddie Clower is fond of saying that if you need to obey the gospel, do it for yourself, but do it also for your family. You need to obey the gospel because you need your sins forgiven. But think of the impact just beyond that blessing that's beyond comprehension. That if you obey the gospel, you will bless your children and generations perhaps to come because of your faith. Who knows what ripple effect your decision to do that will have on your children, your grandchildren, and those yet unborn. And if you're a child of God who's lost your focus on Christ and you're not serving your father like you know that you should, what an impact it will have on your family. For you to take that step to humble yourself. By the way, that idea of humility, it may be that your children know that there's something about your life that you need to make public repentance about. For whatever reason, you're not doing that. What an impact it will make on them if you make that decision, if it's needed. If this is your invitation this morning and you need to come, why not right now as we stand and sing?